All right, with uh, Pastor Randall out of town, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 5 this morning, verses 15 through 17. Just a few verses in Ephesians 5 for you to consider today. Uh, This sermon is going to be preached again in Kansas uh, next week for a conference on ending abortion. Uh, The title of the sermon is Urgency. Urgency. I'm going to make some small adjustments for the conference. It is pertinent to the abortion issue, the issue of urgency, because I don't see any urgency in the pro-life movement, especially in Texas. I just don't see any urgency there. A heartbeat bill was enacted in September, and all the pro-life organizations celebrated as if abortion had ended. Uh, They have no urgency. I could go further and say they have no conscience, because according to their own estimates... 25,000 babies will die in the state of Texas under the heartbeat bill. 25,000. That's not acceptable. That's not acceptable. And so uh, I don't see the sense of celebrating that. And uh, they are celebrating. They have no urgency. But complacency is not limited to the pro-life movement in Texas. It's a pandemic far more contagious than this last, pandem- this last pandemic we've just come through, and it's far more deadly. It's found in every church in the United States of America, and it's found in this church. The issue of complacency. We all get there. We get content, we get comfortable the way things are, and it's easy just to sort of accept that and to develop a comfort zone that's around us and just kind of do church work in football or church work in baseball or basketball or whatever and just forget about where we live and what's happening. Ephesians 5, 15 to 17 does not allow us to wallow in our complacency. The text gives us three basic steps toward getting the urgency that we so desperately need. And the first Well, let's just read verses 15 through 17, then we'll go over this step by step. Verse 15 says, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So the first step towards getting urgency in verse 15 is urgently examine the way that you order your life. We all order our lives in some way, right? We've got (laughs) the way we've constructed the thing. And it's ordered in a particular way, and that's what verse 15 is addressing. It says here, first of all, in order to do this, we have to keep our eyes open. Because verse 15, the first part says, look carefully. Look carefully. If you could just get Christians to open their eyes, especially as it regards themselves. People are aware in social media of so many different things. Things are going on in other sides of the world, but they don't take the time to even look at themselves. Look carefully, it says here in the text. Keep your eyes open, H.C.G. Mole said in his commentary. Keep your eyes open to yourself. This is something people don't really like to hear. 
They don't want to look at themselves. They don't want to stop and, as the Old Testament prophet said, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Consider the way that you've ordered your life. But we have many of examples. The most obvious one, I think, is 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. The Apostle Paul reminds us, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Some translations have this, unless you've been disqualified. We, we, <laughs> this is a Christian discipline. It ought to be a Christian discipline in our lives every so often to stop, to open our eyes about ourselves, and to do self-evaluation, and to say, where am I in my walk with God? Ephesians is obviously addressed to Christians, right? And so I'm speaking this way. But how much more important if you're not? If you're not a believer, how much it's doubly important for you to look at yourself. I mean, what are you doing? What are you doing with this life that God has given you? I mean, what have you done with the Bible? What have you done with the gospel? What have you done with his son, Jesus Christ? Have you bowed the knee to his authority? Or are you rebelling against his authority? Are you waiting for something? What are you waiting for? It doesn't make any sense to wait. You don't know how long you have. None of us knows how long we have. Death could be right around the corner waiting for us. And it is. It's just we don't know how far. We don't know how far away. It's appointed unto man once to die. And after this comes judgment. It will happen. Death will come. And so doubly important for you to do that if you're an unbeliever. Conibear, the great uh, Bible scholar who was a, a specialist on the life of the Apostle Paul, he translates this verse, see then that you walk without stumbling. See then, keep your eyes open, walk carefully. See then that you walk without stumbling. Because it does say there, I'm all over the place here. Let me get back to my text, Ephesians in verse 15 it does say there to uh, walk carefully to look at yourself carefully to look carefully uh, I think it's the King James version that says circumspectly that's a King James sort of word isn't it um, circumspectly what does it mean to walk carefully uh, Dr. Woodrow Kroll who was the teacher at back to the Bible ministries was also my Bible college president uh, my freshman year when I was in Bible college and I remember him telling a story about to illustrate this idea of walking carefully or walking circumspectly. He said, what does that mean? He said one time that he was in Jerusalem and that he was outside the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Garden of Gethsemane is surrounded by a wall and he saw a cat walking on top of that wall that's outside the Garden of Gethsemane. And as that cat was walking, he was very carefully picking up his paws and setting them down like this as he walked along that wall. And he didn't know why the cat would be doing that until they looked at the top of the wall and there was pieces of glass embedded 
in that wall so that people can't just crawl, crawl over the top of that wall and get into the Garden of Gethsemane. That cat was walking circumspectly. <laughs> he was walking really carefully because he didn't want to pierce his paws on that glass, right? What a picture of how we need to be walking in this day that we find ourselves in. We need to be that careful. We need to walk carefully. I remember one time my dad and I were mountain climbing. I believe it or not, I used to do that stuff. You wouldn't know it by looking at me now. But um, back then we, were, we decided we would go off the trail. And it looked like a shortcut. <laughs> so we were getting to the top of this ridge. We take the shortcut. And eventually that shortcut just sort of ended. And we found ourselves out on a cliff <laughs> over, overlooking about a thousand foot drop. And it's one of those places where you get so far forward you can't go back, the point of no return. You just can't turn around and go back because it's just not possible to down climb from that spot. And so we found ourselves over a thousand foot cliff. Had to go only one way and that's up. I'll tell you, in that cir- circumstance, you are walking or climbing circumspectly. <laughs> you're just being very careful where you're putting your hands and your feet, careful to keep Three points on the rock the whole time because you don't want to die. You got motivation. Well, the same thing is true here for us as Christians in our Christian life. You've got motivation. You got enemies, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil are all trying to destroy you. Look at yourself and ask yourself Am I ordering my life like that? Am I walking like that? Because dangers are everywhere. It's like a minefield. Walk circumspectly, walk carefully. Look carefully then how you walk. This is the seventh time in the book of Ephesians that the word walk shows up. Now, what, what in the world is that? Well, that was a culture, of course, that they weren't jumping in cars and driving anywhere. They walked everywhere. You even had philosophers back then who would, that's how they taught. They would take their disciples, and as they walked, they taught. Jesus really is doing that. And a lot of the Gospels, he's walking with his disciples from point A to point B, and on the way he's teaching, isn't he? Well, walking is talking about literally the word in the Greek language is how you order your life, how you construct the way that your life is put together. So how do you order your life? Well, really, there's only one of two options. You can order your life in sin, or you can order your life in the Spirit of God. That's really it. You order your life in sin or you order it by the Spirit of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You once were children of darkness. You once ordered your life, according to verse 2, that way. You once walked in sin and in rebellion against God. That's what the word trespass means. If you're here as an unbeliever, you know what I'm talking about. Your life is ordered that way. The gospel calls you out of that. The gospel calls you to repent of that. Turn from your sin. Turn from all that you know to be sin. 
and turn to Jesus Christ alone. He died on the cross for sinners. He rose from the grave. He conquered death. He can't exercise any more power to demonstrate that to you than he already has. So you can order your life that way in sin or by the Spirit. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 4. Romans 8, verse 4 says, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Are you ordering your life in obedience to the Word of God? Are you ordering your life by the power of the Spirit of God? You can't do it in your own flesh. There's no self-reform that makes this happen. You can't go to an AA meeting and figure that out. You can't go to enough psychiatrists or psychologists and get this figured out. It's a work of God in your life where he shows you the gospel and transforms everything, and he transforms the way that you order your life. Coming back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Well, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And how do we walk in verse 2? Walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. One way we should order our lives, if we're walking in the power of the Spirit of God, will be a life of love. Love for God and love for neighbor. You will love them. Not just have an emotional high about God or about yourself or your neighbor, but you'll walk in obedience. Because Jesus said, if you love me, you do what? You'll keep my commandments. You'll advocate for things that are just. So you have that in Ephesians 5, down in verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Verse 13, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Order your life in such a way that you're walking in the light of the truth. Right? Is that what you're doing as a Christian? As a believer, do you do that? Or you get, are, you, are you not being careful t- towards how you order your life? Have you gotten slack in some of that? Things happen in life. You get caught up in things, and it's not a big step all at once, but it's by degrees that we begin to move off the path, that we get off the path of truth, that we stray into the darkness. Stop right now in your own mind and ask yourself, where am I on that path? Am I reading the Word? Am I seeking to be obedient to the Word of God? Or am I straying by degrees off of the path of truth? Keep your eyes open to yourself. Examine yourself. There's a lot of applications you can bring here. Do you order your life in selfishness, what you want, or do you order it in service to the King? Are you trying to build your own kingdom? Or are you trying to build the kingdom of God? Are you trying to build somebody else's kingdom? But not building the kingdom of God. How are you ordering your life? It's either in sin or it's in the spirit. Hopefully you're ordering it in love. I'm often discouraged when I look at social media, um, lately more so than most times, um, it's amazing how, like, suddenly on social media, everybody's an expert on everything, right? Like, I'm guilty of this. 
Like you suddenly everybody's like an a epidemiologist the last couple of years, right? We, were, we all suddenly became epidemiologists. None of us went to school for it, but we all know everything about, about epidemics. And the same thing is true about global politics and geopolitics. So suddenly over these last couple of years, or suddenly over these last couple of weeks, month or something, we're all experts about geopolitics. Why is this thing happening in Ukraine? Why is this thing happening in Russia? Who's really the bad guy here? Listen, all I know is people are dying. People are dying on both sides, Russian and Ukrainian. Those people will either go to heaven or hell. Have we become so callous that we can look at like cell phone footage of people who've had their clothes burnt straight off their bodies and cheer for one side or the other? That's not loving our neighbor. And I'm saying this to myself as much as to anyone else because I got friends in Ukraine. When this thing started, I'm just instantly thinking about all my friends. I'm thinking all the Russians are the bad guys. But not every Russian is a bad guy. Not every Russian is Putin, right? And so I had to work through this in my own thinking because I, emotionally I'm looking at my friends. I'm thinking about friends who had to flee, who've left their homes and are in other countries now. But man, we got to show love for everybody that's involved with that. Imagine if you were a pastor in a church over there. How are you going to deal with all of that? We simplify everything. It's really not as simple as we like to make it. And we ought to just say, you know what? I'm going to love the people that are involved in this conflict because they're going to heaven or they're going to hell. They're either Christian and they're my brother and sister or they're not, and they need to be. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. If you find yourself in the spot where you are walking, you're ordering your life in Christ, do more of that. <laughs> Don't just get into a holding pattern, right? Don't just be content with, okay, I got my pattern, I go to church on Sunday, and then I read my Bible on, in the morning, and I got my family time, and I got my pattern. And this is what I do, and this is all that I do. There's opportunities all around, we're going to talk about just a second. There's opportunities everywhere to push back on this present evil age. And we need to look for those too. That's part of ordering our life. You come back to Ephesians 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. You either order your life in wisdom or in foolishness. The New English Bible translates this like clever men, not like simpletons. <laughs> I don't read the New English Bible much, but I like that translation. I like simpleton. It's a good word. Thayer, in his Greek uh, lexicon, says, one who in action is governed by piety and integrity. That's somebody who's wise. One who in his actions is governed by piety or a walk with God and integrity. The source of all wisdom is who? Jesus Christ. He's the source of all wisdom. That's already been said right here in this book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom 
and insight. If you go over to Colossians, which is really a parallel book to the book of Ephesians, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, it speaks of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And if you have that, there will be fruit. Pastor Randall has been preaching about that in John 15, right? Colossians says the same thing. Colossians chapter 2, or I'm sorry, Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10, where it says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, doing what? Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. There should be fruit production that's going on in our lives. That, and it should be evident. Fruit's not invisible. right? It's, it's there. Jesus is the source of that wisdom. Walking with him, that, that will give you that wisdom that you need to order your life rightly. Are you walking with him or not? And if you're not a believer, obviously you're not. You need to repent and come to Christ. Now the second point that I would make here, the second step in getting urgency, is not only to urgently examine the way that you order your life, but secondly, to urgently snatch up every opportunity to serve in the kingdom. Urgently snatch up every opportunity to serve in the kingdom. I think that's what Ephesians 5 verse 16 is getting at. Because you get back there to Ephesians 5 verse 16, it says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. A lot of translations say redeeming the time. It's actually a more accurate translation, redeeming. But it's what it means to make up, to snatch up every opportunity. Now, this, there's a couple of words for redemption in Greek in the New Testament. The one, uh, this one, is focusing on the cost of redemption and not the effect. So in this context, it's focusing on the cost of what it takes to snatch up opportunities. So it's insinuating that there is a cost. It is going to cost you something to grab the opportunities that are out there to advance the kingdom of God. You cannot, you cannot just cruise and have things just fall in your lap. You have to show up. And if you show up, God will do something. Sometimes it's just as simple as showing up. And then like God says, well, nobody else showed up. I'll use him. That's been the story of my life. Just showing up. I don't know. I'm no genius. I don't know anything. All I know is like there's, some, there's an opportunity. I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to go show up and see what happens. And next thing you know, something happens. You show up and God shows up. Do that. If you could just get Christians to get out of their easy chairs and show up. They'd see God do something. They'd see him show off. And then you'd be like, man, that was better than anything I ever saw from Hollywood. That's better than anything I've ever imagined that God would do in my life. And all I had to do was show up. So urgently snatch up every opportunity to serve in the kingdom of God. It takes effort. In this context, it means Real effort, Thayer again says, make a wise and sacred use of every opportunity for doing good, 
so that zeal and well-doing are the price by which we make time our own. It's going to cost something. What does it cost? Thayer says, zeal and well-doing. There's an effort. In order to expend effort in this way, to get opportunities to serve in the kingdom of God, usually what it means in terms of the effort is saying no to something else. Saying no to so many of the things that press in on us, that crowd our schedules. We're talking about snatching up time. If we understood how precious time is, we would snatch it up instead of frittering it away and letting it slide. If any one of you saw your bank accounts bleeding like that, you would do something. You would investigate and find out, why is my bank account bleeding money? But when it comes to time, we don't care. You lose money, if you work hard enough, you can get it back. Go take another job, you can get the money back. There's no job you can take to get the time back. Once it's gone, it's gone forever. And there's no way to get it back. And the older that you get, <laughs> I'm finding now, the more aware of that you are. I can't get that time back. It takes effort to redeem the time. A guy named Buxell in Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament talking about redeeming the time, what it means. He says the opportunities offered by time are to be snapped up and used at the expense of effort. So take effort. Examine yourself. Ask yourself, what am I doing for the kingdom of God? What am I doing? And if you find that you're just cruising, be urgent about it. Because you're losing time. You're bleeding time. You're not, you don't know how much time you've got left to do anything for God. Grab it. So urgently snatch up every opportunity, and while you're doing that, recognize that you live in an evil age. Because that's what it means when it says, because the days are evil. Think about the context in which Paul's writing this book. He's probably writing it around 60 A.D., the days are evil. Because what's going ha to happen in 70? Ten years later. That's not a long time. For those of you that are older, you know ten years isn't that long. Those of you younger think that's an eternity. But ten years is not long. What's going to happen? The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the wiping out of Jerusalem. Jesus describes what those days would be like in Matthew chapter 24. Right? He lays that all out there. Destructive times. Paul's saying, look, this is an evil age, but let me tell you something. If those days were evil from 60 to 70 A.D. and a little bit thereafter, let me tell you, they're evil now. They're e <laughs> you live in an evil time, a period of time that's really wicked. Think about this. I'll just make a list for you of what you and I have experienced over the last two years. Pandemics. Inflation. You don't believe that? Have you been to the gas pump this week? Tyranny. Everybody's a tyrant. City councils, governors, county judges, presidents. Everybody takes their little bit of power they've got 
to get us all to quarantine and stay home and not have anything to do with each other or with the church, by the way. People committing suicide because of it. They've lost their whole reason for living when all that was stripped from them. Suicides went through the, through the roof. And right now, right now, while I'm talking, a threat of a global war, which, by the way, always comes after pandemics, rampant inflation, and geopolitical upheaval. Always. Abortion. Well, we're going to do something about abortion in Texas. So now they're free. Great job. You did it. Homosexual marriage. And right here in Fort Worth, Texas, you have a Republican, a five-term, a five-term incumbent over in North Richland Hills, who calls herself conservative, calls herself conservative, and she has killed bills to ban gender modification for minors in the state of Texas as a, house, as a head of a committee. She's done it. You say, well, there's no proof of that. I'll show you the proof. There's plenty of proof that she did it. But she did it in such a way that the average voter wouldn't understand how it's done. They're not idiots. They know how to play the game. And they're doing it. Minors. Jeff Younger has a nine-year-old son who his wife is trying to transgender into a girl. And this legislator, when confronted about it, said, well, I just don't want them to feel bad about themselves. I don't want the transgender people to feel bad about themselves. This is a Republican conservative. <clears throat> Heresies. Right across the lake, you got Kenneth Copeland. Word of faith. It's all illustrated for you right there. Mormonism, you know, Jehovah's Witness, all this stuff, all the world religions. But in the church, you've got easy believism. That says, just walk the aisle, just pray the prayer. You can live like hell and still go to heaven. That's false doctrine. We live in an evil age. You understand what the Apostle John was saying over there in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, when he says this about the situation. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, it says this. It says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Well, that's true, but there's something else that he says in 1 John 2. Go back to verse 13. 1 John chapter 2, verse 13. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men. Why? Because you have overcome the evil one. He's in charge. He's, he's, you know, he's got this situation. It looks like he's in control of everything in this present evil age. But look at this. You have overcome the evil one. Do you believe that or don't you? I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. In case you missed it the first time, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So when it comes to the things that you see, this wickedness that's all around us, our tendency as Christians is to say, well, you know, I kind of just expect it to be that way. But that's wrong. 
You've overcome the evil one. We just need to start acting like it. We need to start acting like the evil one is defeated because he has been. Christ crushed his head at the cross. So we need to buy up every opportunity to advance the kingdom in the face of it. Some of what I do to try to end abortion is in the political sphere, and I don't very often like to even mention it in church. I don't even know why that is. But listen to me. A lot of you watch what I do on Facebook, and I'm sure you all think I'm crazy. It's okay. My own family thinks I'm crazy. All right? It's fine. But listen. Just listen to me. If you want to do something, you can phone call, you can block walk, you can testify in committees. All you have to do to get involved in any of that is come to me and say, Pastor John, I want to know about opportunities when they come up. Somebody did that today. You can drop a hobby, and you could drop some TV time or some streaming time, some binging Netflix or whatever. Stop whining about Texas turning purple, right? And you can go do something. Otherwise, shut up. Because... (laughs) that's the way this thing is set up, you can do something. Charlie and I went to this crazy thing called a precinct meeting. I've never been to one in my life, right? For Tarrant County. I walk in there, it's like chaos. It's just chaos. Nobody knows what's going on. I definitely don't know what's going on. It's the first time I've ever been there. And I'm walking in there, and they're like, you got to find your precinct chair. So I'm looking around the room. Where's my precinct chair? I can't find the right numbers, 4047. I can't find the precinct chair. So I'm like, hey, I can't find the precinct chair. They hand me the envelope and say, congratulations. You're the precinct chair. <laughs> what do I do? I don't know what I'm doing here. So I open the thing, and I, they got a script, basically, this thing, you follow it through, and it was Charlie and me. So we took some nominations. Charlie nominated me for the chair. I nominated Charlie for secretary. We, 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 uh, we submitted a resolution to abolish abortion in the state of Texas, and we took a vote. It was two to nothing, surprisingly. Unanimous. Precinct 4047 passes a, a resolution to abolish abortion that's now going to go to the county meeting and hopefully to the state convention, right? And there are people doing this, by the way, all over the state of Texas. I know the people that were doing it, and they all were saying the same thing. Here's, here's my precinct meeting, and they're doing a selfie. Just them, one, right? If you show up, you might have an opportunity to do something. Now, I'm not foolish. I'm not stupid. I do read my Bible. I know that this stuff is not the gospel, and I know that this stuff does, it's full of corruption, right? I'm seeing all I can tell you about it because I've been helping David Lowe out. I could tell you about this garbage that goes on. But listen, because I've been involved with it, I can share the gospel with people. I've been sharing the gospel with all these politicians that I meet. We go out for breakfast. I sit down with them. I talk to them. And you know what they're doing now? They call me up and they say, hey, John, I got a question about the Bible. That's a good place to be. That's a good place to be. You know what that is? Evangelism. We need to be involved in this thing. So, I've got to stop ranting about that. 
Uh, let's go on to verse 17 because there's still more to talk about. The third step in being urgent, as we finish this up, is urgently commit to the Word of God. If you don't do that, you get involved in all this other stuff, you're going to get off on a side trail, rabbit trail, and you're going to end up who knows where. Urgently, urgently commit to the Word of God in verse 17. Look at verse 17. First John still. Ephesians 5, 17, last verse, as we finish this up. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Urgently commit to the word of God. Two steps. Number one, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Don't be foolish. That's the warning. It's really simple. There's not much to exegete here. Don't be stupid. Don't be a fool. Calvin has a book, it's not his commentary, but it's a, it's a book of sermons he actually preached on the epistle to the Ephesians. Here's what he says about this. We must stand on our guard and not imagine that God must acquit us because of our stupidity. When we are entangled in this world and do not think upon the kingdom of heaven. Don't think that God is going to give you a free pass because you were foolish. You're being dumb. He says, if you're so entangled in this world and you're not thinking upon the kingdom of heaven, that's foolishness. Don't be a fool. Lehman Strauss, in his devotional studies in Galatians and Ephesians, says, the unwise person is the unthinking person who follows the line of least resistance and very often surrenders his convictions. So don't be a fool. So how do you not be a fool? What's the next part of the verse? Understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what God has revealed. When I was growing up, I was taught that the will of the Lord was this very vague, nebulous thing. That like you could had to make sure that you bought the right car and that you went to the right school, you married the right person. So God had this perfect will for you out there that you had to somehow find. It's kind of a pietistic thing. Like you did enough fasting, you did enough praying then God would like show up in your room and tell you what car to buy. Baloney. Okay, baloney, right? God's will is revealed. It's revealed in the word of God. Thayer says about this particular word in the Greek, what, God, what God's will is here is what God wishes to be done by us. What he wishes for us to do. <laughs> How do we know? By reading the Word of God. It is not hidden. Look at Isaiah chapter 45, verse 19. As we fin- I really am finishing this. I promise. There is an end. I can see it on my paper. It's coming. Isaiah 45, verse 19. I did not speak in secret. This is God talking. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. He doesn't hide it. He's revealed it in the Word of God. So what's the will of God? Read the Bible and obey it. Done. Perfect will accomplished. (laughs) Go out and buy whatever car you want to buy. Marry whoever you want to marry. Do whatever you want to do as long as you're obeying the Word of God. Don't make this harder than it is. It's simple. It's really simple. It's revealed in the Word of God. Even to the point, 
of what he's revealed right here in Ephesians 1, verse 18. Listen to what he's revealed here. This is Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He has revealed so much in his word. It's amazing what he's revealed, and we can't even but scratch the surface of it. And so commit yourself urgently to becoming a student of the Word of God. You say, I struggle with Scripture memory. So do I. Let's struggle together with that, right? And push on, right? You You struggle with doing family time. Push on. You struggle with reading the Word yourself. And for your own time, doing push on, it's worth it. Be urgent about that. If you found out you had a disease, you'd be urgent to, get a, to see the doctor. Be urgent about the word because this is going to keep you on, pay, on track no matter what else you're doing in this crazy world we find ourselves in. Be urgent about this. And everything else will fall in line. The Scottish preacher Alexander McLaren said, it is not the tick of the clock that measures time but it is the deeds that we crowd into it. It's not the, the tick of the clock. At the end of your life, you're going to measure time by the stuff that you crowded into that time that you had. The deeds you crowd into time is how your spending of time will actually be judged on the day of judgment. What you have done for Christ versus what you have done for yourself as a Christian. I'm not talking about heaven and hell at this point. We're talking about Standing before the Lord and Him rewarding us, you say, where do you get that from? 2 Corinthians 5.10, and this is the end. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Lord, we will stand before you one day. Even as believers, we will stand before you. We will answer. We'll, hopefully we will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into thy rest. Lord, the time for rest is then. And of course, Sundays. We've got Sundays. We're thankful for that. But other than that, the time for rest is when we die. We can lay down then. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to be urgent and to snap up the opportunities that are right in front of us. Right here in this church, people can go on mission trips. Right here in this church, they can go out and preach the gospel. Right on a Friday night, they can get, gather together and write a letter to friends. We can, we can go out to the clinics and offer help and hope to women who don't think they have either. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to see the opportunities that are staring us in the face and to buy up the time so that we can do them. And Lord, we pray that your name would be glorified. Not any of us, not even this church's name, 
but that ultimately, Lord Jesus, that your name would be lifted up and glorified because you alone deserve it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.